very much. Uh, Walter Ambrose, uh, the title paper is Trickster, Tawfiq Okasha, the Perpetuation of Liberal Crisis and the Shaping of Counter-Revolutionary Discourse. <coughs> well, first I want to thank Reem for putting me on the program. I actually came here at my own expense. I turned down going to two other conferences that would have paid all my expenses because this one looked so much more interesting. Uh, I count as a local participant since I uh, was a teacher. My paper is about counter-revolution in media, but there is a Midan in it, Midan Abbasiyah. It became famous recently because of the military's violent suppression of demonstration demonstrations against the military council at the Ministry of Defense, which is adjacent to Midan Abbasiyah. Midan Abbasiyah was the site of earlier demonstrations, not against the military council, but against the revolution. On December 23, 2011, I attended one of these alternative demonstrations. It happened on the same day as a biggish demonstration in Midan Tahrir called Gumat Radda Sharaf, the Friday of Restoring Honor in response to the army's attack on a sit-in in front of the parliament building in which soldiers had beaten and humiliated women. The Abbasiyah demonstration, by contrast, was named by some of its supporters Gurmat al the Friday of the Crossing, to honor the armed forces by invoking their finest hour when they breached the Barlev line in the October War of 1973. Supporters of the Abbasiyah demonstration billed their event as a corrective revolution, it was one of an ongoing series of anti-revolution demonstrations. The social composition of the protesters on this occasion was quite different than the demonstrations that had taken place in Medan and Tahrir. There were few women, little evident class diversity, and not even very much diversity in age. As you can see, middle-aged men dominated the crowd, unlike the more youthful and often more gender-mixed crowds in the Tahrir demonstrations. Few of the Abbasiyah crowd marked themselves Islamically with a beard for men or a head or face covering for women, so it wasn't also like the Tahrir demonstrations that were dominated by Islamists. Of the dozen or so demonstrations that I observed over the past year and a half, this was the only one at which I felt nervous. It wasn't just because the rhetoric was aggressively anti-American. There was always a smattering of that in the Tahrir demonstrations. Rather, there was an undercurrent of menace. When I told a friend about it later, he chuckled and said that most of the people in the Abbasiyah demonstration were soldiers, police, and their families. Certainly, the men carrying the signs in this picture looked like tough customers. While I was there, I listened in on the tail end of a television interview being done by one of the anti-revolution stations and overheard a man say to his friends, those people in Medan Tahrir aren't human beings. Tahrir demonstrations, by contrast, did have a fair amount of naming and shaming of the people who were said to have supported the regime. There were also always calls for qasas, capital punishment, directed at the high officials of the regime, mostly, of course, at Mubarak himself. Tahrir demonstrations featured a lot of demands to purge the media of old regime directors, but never anything like these posters hanging from the traffic flyovers in Medan Abbasiyah, demanding death for media figures who were friendly to the revolution. The rhetoric from the podium matched the signs. Foreign plots were threatening national unity. American Israel were behind the revolution. The foreign and private media were traitors, and only the army, the police, and the judiciary stood in the way of chaos. 
I was not wrong to feel nervous. <coughs> After I left, some BBC reporters who tried to cover the event got roughed up by the crowd. That was ironic, given that at one point the crowd had chanted, El Gazira Fein, Shab al Ho, where is El Jazeera here in the Egyptian people? As if there were a plot by the foreign media to underreport the corrective revolution. But for all the undeniable emotion among the participants, the event was still thoroughly staged. As you can see, compared to Medan and Tahrir demonstrations, the Abbasiyah event was very small. Here are satellite maps at the same scale showing Medan's Tahrir and Abbasiyah. Not only was the demonstration in Medan and Abbasiyah small, it was also extremely coherent. The violent expulsion of the BBC reporters didn't mean that there was no media presence. On the contrary, Egyptian state television seems to have owned the event. The inevitable sea of flags waved by the crowd were given for free in Abbasiyah. They were props for a televised spectacle, unlike in Medina Tahrir, where they were sold by vendors, many of whom later turned out to be government informers. <laughs> the signs people carried were standardized, as if they'd been handed out by a committee rather than cobbled together by individuals. People the police and the army are one hand is an obvious one. In the early days of the revolution, it was just the army and the people. That's what you saw in Medina Tahrir. I'm actually unsure who the guy with Tantawi is. My best guess is Farida Deeb, Hosni Mubarak's lawyer, but if anybody knows better, please tell me. In this sign, it was the army, the police, and justice. And if that sounds a bit awkward, it's because it's a garbled version of the formula, Geish, Shorta, Urigal, Qada the army, the police, and the men of justice. That had a particular origin, which I'll explain in a moment. You've seen this already. The bit about foreign funding was all over Medan Abbasiyah. The notion of a corrective revolution has the same provenance as the last slide. This one comes, uh, this one names the demonstration of Gurmat al the Friday of the Crossing. Again, same provenance as the others, as I'll explain in a moment. And again, the anti-foreigner line, and again, like a mantra, the armed forces, the police, and the men of justice. Now, at last, here's your source. ضد الطغيان ضد الماسونيه العالميه التي تريد ان تدمر هذا الوطن وشعبه اني اناشدكم Our, our mother Egypt summons you. She summons you to the reckoning, to the Friday of the crossing. The crossings to the nation, the crossing to the people, the crossing to the armed forces, the crossing to the police forces, the crossing to the men of justice against tyranny, against global masonism that wants to destroy this nation and its people. I summon you. I summon you. Who is this guy? <laughs> his, his name is Taufir Okasha, and he's credited as the organizer and inspiration for the anti-revolution demonstrations in Abbasiyah. Okasha is a former member of the National Democratic Party, unsuccessful in an attempt to win a seat in the 2005 parliament, and since 2008, the owner of a satellite television station called El Farain, the Pharaohs. El Farain's most prominent program is a talk show called El Masri Yom, Egypt Today. 
Actually, to call it a talk show is misleading. Arkasha himself does most of the talking, sometimes for <coughs> three hours straight. His main themes are fanatical devotion to the ruling military council and the police, and condemnation of all the forces that brought down the Mubarak regime on grounds that they are agents of foreign powers, most prominently the United States and Israel, but allied with a grand conspiracy encompassing the European Union, Iran, Hamas, Hezbollah, Southern Sudan, Qatar, communists, the Muslim Brotherhood, the youth of the 56th movement, the Kefaya movement, Mohamed Barate's National Association for Change, Google, Facebook, the Masons, and the Jews. Though Akash has become the voice of the counter-revolution, he and just about all the other anti-revolution figureheads present themselves, as, as Mark just uh, referred to in his paper, as nominally in favor of it, just not in the same way that all the people who actually fought for the revolution were for it. No doubt Tawfiq Akash is close to the regime, or actually close to the military council, now that it exercises executive powers. Clearly his efforts are buttressed by someone with money and access to the state's resources. The demonstration that I used to introduce Arkasha was staged for television. The unified slogans on the signs were no accident. They had all been hammered out for months on Arkasha's program. <coughs> I mentioned earlier that the Gormata Obor publicized by Arkasha took place on a day of dueling midans, Abbasiya and Tahrir. In terms of the numbers at each millionaire, it was no contest. Um, upwards of a couple hundred thousand turned up in Midan and Tahrir. And Abbasiya, assuming that people came and went over a period of time, 10,000 would be an extremely generous estimate. <coughs> but the actual numbers weren't the point for the Abbasiya demonstration. Abbasiya was a TV show. The signs were props and the people were extras. Tafio Kasha was the star. Let me show you what they did with one of these relatively tiny demonstrations. teeming masses in Medan and Tahrir. You have to admit that the song is perfect. Sura, sura, sura. Picture, picture, picture. Rising sura. Sura al-shabat farhan tahtar arayal al-mansura. A picture. We all want a picture. A picture of a joyous people beneath the victorious flag. Photograph is for posterity. Gather closer. Whoever stays away from the Medan won't appear in the picture. That's how the song ends. I didn't let it play quite that long. It's by Abdulhim Hafiz, an icon of the Nasser era, and the words are by Salah Jaheen, the poet laureate of Nasser. The song was first sung on July 23rd, 1966, the 14th anniversary of the Free Officers' Revolution. The revolutionaries in Tahrir used this song as well, so there's a strong sense here of a deliberate reappropriation. Now at this point, let me shift gears. I wanted to frame my paper with an Arkasha orchestrated propaganda production because it conveys the scale of the phenomenon and a taste of its character. But it's Taufi Okasha himself that I'm after. 
what do we make of him? <coughs> you can see that he enjoys the backing of powerful people, certainly the remnants of the NDP, though Okasha strenuously denounces them on his program. Undoubtedly, the military council. You can see from the picture that he's ridiculed easily and often. The first time I watched this program, he struck me as the last of the dead enders. I was in stitches. I felt like I needed a joint. He rambles on about Masonic plots. He tells you that the BBC is well known as an MI6 operation. On the internet, pictures of him kissing former NDP power broker Safwata Sharif's hand were gleefully juxtaposed to his later denunciations of Sharif. Okasha ran for a seat in last year's election and was reported to have received only nine votes. His supporters referred to him as Dr. Tawfiq. And it's not meant to be just an informal sign of respect. The website of the National Party of Egypt, the NDP successor party that Okasha founded with Talat Sadat, states that he has a PhD in media institution management from Lakewood Bradenton University in Florida. Everyone under the sun has pointed out that the place doesn't exist. <laughs> At the same time, I find his name constantly in my peripheral hearing. He's savaged in the Facebook bubble, but treated respectfully in the state-owned media. Clearly, he manages to effectively spin events in the media. After the recent violent clashes with protesters against the military council in Abbasia, I read a Facebook posting by an upper-middle-class activist crowing that the political forces would now surely have no choice but to band together to oppose the military council. <laughs> Another friend mentioned that her mother visited their home village in the Delta and found most people delighted that the army had attacked the protesters. The protest was part of a plot in which an attack on the Ministry of Defense would be coordinated with an Israeli invasion of Sinai. The Facebook friend's interpretation of the Abbasi of violence was dead wrong, and the villagers' fantastic misinterpretation of what the protest against the military council was about was straight out of Tawfiq Okash's Egypt Today program. So what do we do with Okasha? I understand him as a trickster figure, though in a very specific context. I'll explain this as briefly as possible. Anthropologists don't write very much about revolutions, though there is a small body of work on the anthropology of events. However, recently a number of anthropologists have argued that a constellation of rather venerable concepts can be reinterpreted to form an analytical framework for understanding political revolutions. On their own, Victor Turner, Paul Redin, and Gregory Bateson are minor currents in the disciplinary genealogy. And Rene Girard wasn't even an anthropologist. He was a literary critic turned mythologist. Linked together, they provide a surprisingly productive framework for thinking about revolutions. Victor Turner's writing on the ritual process is the cornerstone. Since Mark has just talked about Turner, I'll only emphasize that the basic ritual process is meant to be mediated by a master of ceremonies. Liminality is pure danger and therefore needs to be carefully controlled. The point of ritual is to provide a framework for doing so. Turner's writing contains some speculation about revolution as a social drama, but Bjorn Thomason makes the point explicit. A revolution shares the features of ritual process, but unlike a ritual, it may have no master of ceremonies. At least initially, there's often no person or institution capable of closing off the liminal condition. Liminality becomes protracted and open. In his later writings, Turner refined his thoughts on the state of communitas. Communitas is salient in the early stages of the process. Subsequently, as the crisis persists, as uh, 
Mark uh, just quoted this as well, sides are taken and power resources are calculated. The generalized sense of communitas gives way to schism and to factions. This is where Girard becomes useful. Girard understands human beings as essentially imitated. Mimesis is fundamental to all social processes. In particular, people are prone to imitate in the spheres of violence, sexuality, and laughter. Though I haven't talked about the trickster yet, bear in mind that violence, sexuality, and laughter are intrinsic to the trickster persona. Tafir Okasha floats on an undercurrent of violence. He frequently provokes laughter, though of a nervous sort. Okasha's Egypt Today program is also rich in sexual innuendo, and the Farain channel as a whole even more so, particularly a program called Basraha, frankly speaking, which is a sex show presented by a sexy woman. The relation of Okasha to his bevy of female presenters is mercilessly parodied by his many detractors. But leave all that aside for a moment. There is something else to be said about Mimesis before I say more about Okasha as a trickster. And this is that a state of protracted liminality is, in Gerard's terms, also a mimetic crisis. In a nutshell, what or who do you imitate when many of the social and especially political anchors of normal life are thrown into question by the revolution? This brings me to the concept of a trickster. A trickster is a being at home in liminality, both a teller of tales and a character in them. In the fields of folklore, literary studies, and anthropology, there's a vast literature on the figure of the trickster, written by such iconic figures as Evans Pritchard, Freud, Jung, Levi-Strauss, Edmund Leach, Joseph Campbell, and Natalie Zeman Davis. However, the political implications of the trickster are rarely addressed directly by any of them, or to be more precise, at least not in the specific circumstances of how a political storyteller functions in the protracted liminality and mimetic crisis that pertain to a revolution. In this context, it must be emphasized first that Okasha is an outsider in the fields he himself defines as crucial to his persona, and the politics and journalism. It is unlikely that in the long run, he will be seen by arbiters of taste, intellect, or power as successful in these endeavors. The second thing that must be understood about him is that he thrives in a liminal crisis. The very qualities that in normal times limit Okasha's prospects and confine him to the margin of mess that marks and maintains the boundaries of society serve him very well when the normative anchors of social life have been thrown into question. Thirdly, it must be understood that he is a brilliant performer, but essentially an imitator with cripplingly limited terms of reference. As an outsider, his main point of reference is himself rather than the social norms of his audience. This makes him dangerous in a state of protracted liminality, in which the audience itself lives in a state of suspended social and political structure. In other words, Arkasha, the creature of liminality, can become a pattern which others will imitate. This is possible because deeply ingrained mimetic processes have been interrupted by the revolution. Okasha acquires imitators, if not exactly conscious followers. Girard emphasizes that mimesis is typically an unconscious process. Once imitation begins, it is human nature for it to become self-sustaining. Let me conclude with a brief comment on schismogenesis. This, you'll remember from an earlier slide, is Gregory Bateson's term comes from a 1930s ethnography of New Guinean headhunters, in which Bateson struggled to understand how apparently horrifying violence had become intrinsic to a group's social equilibrium. 
he proposed that the origin of erroneous social patterns was political crisis caused by asymmetric culture contact between Europe and New Guinea. As Thomason and Horvath point out, Bateson lacked the tools to specify what he meant by error. But the notion of political crisis as the origin of social schism was powerfully suggestive, particularly when combined with a vision of revolution as a mimetic crisis and the influence of a trickster. One of the perplexing things about Tofir Okasha is his relationship with existing political forces. Is he an agent of the old regime or a tool of the military council? He's both, but he's not reducible to either. Okasha isn't just a straightforward spokesman for claimants to power. He's more comprehensible as a trickster who has initiated a schism with the formal political forces and perhaps within society. Revolutionaries often imagine that the capacity for creating new politics to oppose the old is all their own. But Okasha reminds us that in a mimetic crisis, the potential for creativity is owned by nobody, at least until somebody succeeds in closing off the revolutionary liminal condition. Okasha's effectiveness lies in his capacity to articulate a model to be imitated in the only circumstances in which he could be a mimetic image. In other words, circumstances in which the familiar mimetic images have shifted and blurred. He's creating a kind of slavish veneration of the military, so extreme that the military itself could never convincingly promote it. The elements of such veneration are not new. The right person, or the right trickster, one might say, can perform the role of bricoleur, recombining existing social material <coughs> in new configurations. In my abstract, which many of you must have read, I described Arkash's formulation as an articulation of Egyptian fascism. I don't think that's far wrong, though one might instead call it a culture of virulent militarism. But to be clear, I don't think Arkash's articulation is comprehensible simply as the voice of the military council. No doubt he has their blessings, and there's no doubt also that a culture of militarism in Egypt could link ominously to a global military-industrial complex in which the Egyptian military is already well ensconced. That's another story for another time, though it's worth noting. But in the end, Taufi Okasha, as a trickster, is in it most of all for himself. Fortunately for him, but probably not for the rest of us, he was in the right place at the only moment in modern Egyptian history in which he could flourish. People will continue to laugh at him, but it would be nervous laughter tinged with secret worries that somebody might actually be taking him seriously. Thank mm. you.